Oh, I believe it. I just got a new one for sure. Ooh. Yeah, like memorizing is gross. Are we are we team iPhone <laughs> or team Android? Oh, team Android. Oh. Okay. That's the end of this interview. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Caroline Schwester. And today we are privileged to have Dr. Remley Crow with us, and we're going to talk about some research. Let's get real nerdy down to the details. Dr. Crow, uh, for those that haven't seen you or read any of your myriad papers, um, let us know a little bit about yourself, and then we'll uh, let's talk about some research. Sure. I mean, you had me at nerdy. That was on point. <laughs> I, in, in I stole that from Dr. Ken Milne, the, the let's get nerdy thing. I want to give him credit for that before. Love it. Well, I am Remley Crow, and I'm honored to be here. So I'm currently Director of Clinical and Operational Research at ESO, which just means I wear two hats. So half of my work is related to EMS research, and the other half is EMS quality improvement which those things are often related and share similar methodologies, but have slightly different goals. Um, and then I am a 10 year now, ooh, decade EMT. Uh, and I uh, got my EMS career started in Mexico City, actually, which uh, was an exciting adventure. And then went on to do the National Registry of EMTs EMS Fellowship, which is how I got into this research thing. Wow, that sounds cool. Talk more about that. What, what did that entail? Uh, so the fellowship? Yeah. Yeah, so that is a really exciting opportunity. The National Registry takes EMTs or paramedics who have a bachelor's degree or higher off the street and pays for their master's and their PhD while having a full-time job in EMS research. So I studied epidemiology at The Ohio State University while working full-time at the National Registry, getting immediate hands-on experience. So it is a really awesome program that has still continued to this day. That's a that's interesting. It's something I don't think people know about the NREMT and how they are trying to push research forward. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, when people talk to you about like, oh, you know, EMTs don't have a career path or there's no place to go with this stuff. Um, it's really interesting to hear that there are things you just have to kind of look for them and kind of see where they're at. Um, so I th that's really cool. Um, I, got, I want to jump into it. I mean, there's so much research that you've done, and I want to get into why, you know, we don't do a lot of research EMS-wise and how we need to do more of it. Um, I, I, was, I listened to you give a talk on stroke scales, and this is something that kind of blew my mind, was that the common stroke scale that we use in the field and for civilian outreach doesn't apply to a significant part of our population. So... Tell me a little bit about the or the Ahura scale and how it came to be and how you researched it and what it, you know, some of the components, we'll put it in the show notes and link to it, but we have a significant Spanish population in our, our area. And I would have never thought that that didn't work. Yeah. So stroke scales are one of my favorite topics. Um, it seems like, you know, every day a new stroke scale is coming out with a new mnemonic and I'm still kind of waiting for the Remley stroke scale to come out, or maybe I just need to work on that one next. Um, but, you know, when we talk about what are the characteristics of a good pre-hospital stroke screening instrument, it has to be something that's easy to remember and that inspires that sense of urgency. And so in English, you know, we've had the be fast and the fast for a very long time. Like my mother could tell you what fast means, face, arm, speech, time to go to the hospital. Okay. Um, but it turns out that in Spanish, there was no such mnemonic that is easy to remember and that has those same favorable characteristics. 
we learn signs and symptoms of stroke, uh, but we don't have this you know, handy mnemonic that works for the public as well as for EMS clinicians. And so you know, COVID hit and I had a little time on my hands to sit and think. Uh, so I teamed up with my friends, Dr. Paul Banerjee and Marcy Wilson, and we sat down and thought of, well, how can we get all these signs and symptoms into a Spanish mnemonic? And we ended up coming up with ahora, which means now in Spanish. So it has that same sense of urgency and has all of those signs and symptoms of the BFAST. And we thought this was something that's really important to have because in Marcy's work, she's a stroke coordinator at a large hospital. It, she found out that when it comes to patients who speak Spanish and have had strokes, they're less likely to even recognize the stroke symptoms after having had one. And so it's really important that we work to get this awareness of what are the signs and symptoms of a stroke and uh, activate 911 early. Because for all that we hurry in EMS, the actual largest time between, uh, you know, in the, in the stroke care continuum there is the time it takes the patient or somebody near the patient to recognize signs and symptoms and call 911. So I, I want to unpack the stroke scale thing a little bit because I know that there's there's a lot to talk about. Talk about the development of the Ohana scale and 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 later after that I, I want to talk about how whether or not the stroke scale evolution we've had has actually worked or changed uh, anything significantly. So talk about the development of the Ohana scale a little bit because I think I, reading the article I thought it was interesting that it wasn't the first idea that you guys had that ended up being the the best idea. You guys had to work through that, which is something that I don't think that as a culture, we do very well. I think we tend to see like, all right, the first thing we did didn't work, then nothing will work. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And so Marcy and Paul and I got together and we had an idea. We wanted to translate it directly. So the word fast in Spanish is rápido. And we we're like, okay, we can kind of fit this in here. But no matter how we tried to squish the signs and symptoms, we just couldn't get it to where the first letter stands for what it really means. So for example, you know, the A in ahora means andar, which is to walk. But um, in some other scales, we had come up with iterations where it was alteración de equilibrio. And the word you needed to remember was actually that last word, equilibrio. Uh, and so the scale didn't work. It wasn't recalling the right letter. Um, so we kind of scratched rápido after a few iterations. We just couldn't get it to work. And we sat and we're, let's work this a different way. Let's work it backwards. So we listed out all of the different ways of saying the most common signs and symptoms of stroke from the BFAST. And we saw if we could sort of get the letters to come together into a different word. And that's how we came up with our order. We hadn't even considered that wasn't on the radar, but we were like, ah, this means now this has that same sense of urgency and more of the letters stand for exactly what they mean, which is going to help with recall, we believe. And a lot of people are learning Spanish today and they didn't think they were going to. Here we are. <laughs> so talk a little bit about the evolution of the stroke scale, because I know, you know, when Danny and I were coming up, we were taught the Cincinnati scale. Um, there was a, a hot minute for a couple of years where the Miami scale was really popular. And then you had race and be fast. And I, I think for a lot of people, it can get really confusing because there's, you know, I'm throwing out a number, but let's say 17 stroke scales that all sort of look for the same thing. And there's different ones to look for LVOs and for, you know, TIAs, whatever else. So what, if I'm a, a clinician in the field and I'm thinking like, all right, I need to find the most, let's say efficient way of assessing for a stroke. Have we found a scale that is the best scale that works or like what, what, what does the data show so far about the best stroke scale to use? So there's some good news there. Um, and you're right. There's absolutely a ton of different stroke scales out there. And I think it's important for us to take a step back and think about why all of a sudden all of this interest and in all of these new stroke scales. Um, well, before, you know, when we were doing just Cincinnati, we were looking for 
just stroke or no stroke. So is the patient having a stroke or not? Now we also find a need to grade stroke severity. So is the patient having a large vessel occlusion or an intracranial hemorrhage? Because that's going to change potentially where we're going to take the patient because they need a certain type of treatment, whether that's thrombectomy or, you know, something that's only done at a comprehensive stroke center. Um, so I think that led to a lot of these stroke severity instruments being developed. And the truth is, when we look at where a lot of these stroke instruments were developed, would it surprise you to know that they were often developed within stroke trials? So patients we already knew to be what? having ischemic stroke. Shocking. <laughs> I know. So um, this reminds me of one of my favorite research studies that was ever published. That's the BMJ parachute trial. You wouldn't think we needed a randomized control trial to know whether or not parachutes prevent harm and injury when you jump out of an airplane, would you? I love that one. That's yeah, exactly. So, they, I mean, they did this, right? People jumped out of airplanes with backpacks, either full of air or full of parachute. You didn't know. I love one. that there was somebody, there's a group of people who are like, wait a second. We got it. All right. We're going to, we're going to randomize it too. So here's a bag and <laughs> good, good luck, Dave. I'm sure you'll but, be fine. I mean, so the reason, and they, you know, they found no difference. And so this is published in the BMJ and it's all really great. And you read through it and they found like zero difference in terms of death or injury of people who jumped out of planes with empty backpacks. And you're like, what? Oh, well, obviously the plane was on the ground. And so I like to use that example because, you know, validating a stroke scale within an ischemic stroke trial is a little bit like having the plane on the ground. How's this thing going to fly when we take it out to the real world in EMS where, you know, we have a myriad of conditions that look like stroke. Um, and so it's not surprising to me to see different real world performance than those initial validation studies. And so that's kind of a natural progression of how we test out scales. So it, with through all that, is there, in your mind, is there a preferred scale that works? The, the way that we would say it just properly, it's like, it works fine. It's, it, it just does the thing. Like, is there a, a scale in your mind that, that just does the job, whether it's quick and dirty or as accurate as we need it? And so we did a study for that. And I think I will back this up and give some credit to Dr. Keenan, who did a really great study looking at what are the characteristics that are needed for a pre-hospital stroke screening instrument to be successful. And so some of those characteristics are probably worth us talking about for a second. One is how often do we see a stroke as an individual EMS clinician in the field? That's going to depend on your system, right? But chances are it's not all that frequent. And so this thing has to be easily recalled when you do face a patient who may or may not be having a stroke. Uh, so having a mnemonic where the signs and symptoms, the letters stand for what they mean is very helpful to aid in that kind of recall. The other thing is we don't want complex scoring. We were goofing around a little bit before the show talking about, oh, well, math under pressure is always fun and I'm going to look it up and all this. Well, we don't want to be doing complex math under pressure. So these yes, no scorings are favorable of did they have the symptom? Yes or no, not what degree and assign 2.5 points and multiply by six. No, we're not doing any of that. Um, so we took to the ESO data set and we looked at, well, how do these stroke screening instruments perform in the real world? Because there's some thought that, you know, some of these stroke severity instruments perform better than the good old Cincinnati that we all learned, face, arm, speech, time to go to the hospital. And so we tested race, lambs, and van against the Cincinnati. And what we found was there's no difference in terms of predicting LVO stroke if we just score the Cincinnati of zero, one, two, or three based on how many symptoms are positive. Uh, and 
that's really important for a number of reasons. It doesn't mean throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you're doing race, you're doing it all wrong. No, that's not what it means at all. We know that doing any stroke scale is important and is better than doing no stroke scale. It just doesn't seem to matter which stroke scale you use. So if I'm a medical director thinking about rolling out a new stroke screening instrument, I may want to think twice about, you know, am I going to affect reliability and what's the uplift on training and what are the costs involved with this? If something like the face arm speech works just as well. Now you heard, I did not say be fast in that test. And that's because at the time we didn't have enough data. So there's a need to continuously update this kind of study and look at things like the be fast where we're adding in signs that we know are highly predictive of stroke, something like, you know, eye deviation and new onset blindness. So still work to be done, but our current data suggests that doing something like the Cincinnati is as good as any of the other severity instruments out there. And that's something we've talked about on the show a lot where, you know, absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence, right? right? So just if not having enough data set, data in a data set doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, whatever you're analyzing doesn't work. And I think that, and, and Danny, jump in on this too. I think that we, we talk a lot about being clinicians and I think we sometimes conflate that with having more knowledge that's, it's good to know, but it's not necessarily applicable to whatever you're doing. So I think it, I, it occurs to me that it's good to know that, you know, whatever lower leg leg weakness is more indicative of like an ACA stroke than an MCH. Like those kind of things are nice to know, but I don't know that it actually functionally changes the outcome. So I think in EMS, we tend to want to know things down to like the granular level, but we still need to apply things much more to the macro level where the macro is going to change our treatment. The granular is just stuff that's kind of good to know. I mean, am I, am I off base on that? Do you think you guys think? No, I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, just, I- so part of me want Danny to be like, yes, <laughs> one day no, no because think about it and you know this goes back to entry-level competence what do we want a new paramedic or a new emt to know we want them to know the easy easily recallable cincinnati positive all that other stuff more experienced clinician gets on scene or you learn some more and you read and you understand a little bit more about the process you can jump in and say, oh, well, yeah, that might be an MCA because it's got this area seems to be affected or, you know, I'm seeing this and, you know, that's a learning point. And like I said, it's cool to know. And, you know, it's always cool to be that guy in the back of the truck going, well, excuse me, I believe it's, uh, you know, but in the end, the reality is we have to figure out that this person is having a neurologic event. And then the next decision is where is the best place for this person to be? And that's really the fundamental of stroke care. You know, I mean, like, you know, Caroline being a new EMT, like, do you, you know, the whole NIH scale, do you understand it? No. What do you do? Fast, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, still, like, like, talking about using like clinical aids with three things too, like, it's, I think it's difficult to say, you know, like, like the NIH scale. And, and Caroline, I want to get back to what you were taught in school. Did you find that it was confusing given? all these scales as you were going through EMT school? Yeah, because like they just told us like, all right, here's all these scales and like you never know like which one to use and they don't tell you which one to use and they're kind of like, pick what works for you. So it's... <laughs> so how do you know what works for you if it doesn't work for you? <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> 
No, but I think this is a good point of where there's benefit to keeping things simple. So keep it simple for, you know, this transport decision. But then there is that reward in learning around some of those more in-depth things. So like neglect, I had never heard of or seen neglect while I was in EMT school. Um, But now that, you know, somebody explained it and showed it to me, wow, I know exactly what that is, but I wouldn't have looked for it. So I think um, there's a lot of benefit to having the feedback loop closure. So if, you know, I transport a patient who I believe to be having a stroke, getting my hospital outcome to tell me, oh, actually that patient was having a condition called hydrocephalus is really important for me as an EMT. I hadn't, I've never heard of that. Let me look it up. Sure does have some very similar symptoms. Okay. Um, But I I think that there's where we also have an opportunity to grow is through that feedback. You know, it doesn't end at the ED doors. I'm interested in your opinion on this, Dr. Crow, because this is something that we've we've talked about off air with a lot of people too. As far as EMS education is concerned, and it's interesting getting this from you know the, the the professional side later on. I wonder if the almost like the vocabulary that we use is sort of hindering our providers because terminology is like you know hemispatial neglect is mm-hmm. not something that's given generally to you know EMTs or even medics for that matter. Do you think that? like using proper phrasing is something that could change practice for a lot of people or is it is it going to be better to explain to people what the actual terminology and phrasing means or would it be better to i hate using the expression dumb down but would it be better to use simple english in almost everything that we do do you think uh, so that's funny because I learned most of this in simple Spanish because I did my EMT school in Mexico City, <laughs> so uh-huh. which was a whole new challenge for me because I am from North Carolina. So, but I ended up doing my EMT school there. Um, and at the time, you know, stroke screening in general just wasn't big. And I used the orange book, so I, you know we were looking at it in English and Spanish for me. Um, so I may not be the best one to comment on this, but I do think that where it's simpler, you're more likely to recall it, right? So if we use these large words and things that I can't readily relate to, I'm not going to be as able to recall it. So if instead of saying hemispatial neglect, if we can show a video of what that looks like, I think that stays in my memory a lot better than the actual vocabulary sometimes. And and this gets back to something we were talking about off air. Um, We're going to get into some academia now. Um, we had talked previously about the use of using decision aids in clinical treatment. Um, last month, you had you had worked on editing this paper, um, that were, and all of this stuff is going to be in the show notes, whenever else. But talk to us a little bit about the using decision aids in clinical treatment. Um, and we had talked a little bit off air about using checklists as well, um, sort of doing that cognitive offloading. What is what does the data reflect in that? What's your personal opinion on it? And how do you think we can, as a as a system, as a culture, start to implement those devices? I guess to to improve care overall. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great topic to bring up. So I think that there's this cultural shift that we're sort of in the middle of. And, you know, in the earlier days, maybe it was seen as a sign of weakness to pull out a field guide or to pull out something. Now it would be a cell phone, right? Uh, and look up something. <laughs> well, even like my, my old partner used to carry around the old uh, the old Infomed guide that was right, you know, yeah. three inches thick. And it's it's got a lot of information on it. But I, I had I also, my waterproof guide. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what's interesting because I, I know a lot of people that had them and I, I can't recall anyone actually flipping through it. You know, well, if, it's because they were hiding behind the ambulance in the dark room. <laughs> real quick. You didn't see them do it. Nobody no, wants I, to admit you can't have all of this stored at will. But I think when we're talking about absolutely. things that are low frequency and high criticality, we need to have, or at least me, if I'm the patient, I want you to go look that up and be really sure before you give it to me. Um, so I think there's some room to change our mentality around the use of decision aids and field guides and things like that. Um, checklists are really interesting, and I am a big fan of checklists. Uh, because they make us walk through each step. And 
check it off. I mean, that's exactly what it sounds like, right? It sounds so simple, but how often do we really use them? And, you know, the whole process behind developing a checklist. So I'm a huge survey methodology nerd too, um, but developing a checklist is really complex. And I think it's a fascinating process on how do we pick out those key steps in the process and how many of those steps do we not even realize that we do because we go into autopilot until we try to map them out. And, and you see that I think a lot of different projects with RSI and like that would come up with, you know, laminated sheets with grease pens, like, all right, you made right. sure that you pre-sedated the person, you gave the right treatments and things like that. And I think there were some, there were some data sets that actually showed there was a reduction in harm, a reduction in medication errors and things like that, which I think, and again, it's not so, it, we see it, I think, almost as a sign of weakness, like you said, where, you know, we're not very comfortable as an industry saying, I don't know. Um, right. And I, I don't know how much of that is that, you know, we're called because we're the ones who are supposed to know. And, you know, there's a, the difference between, you know, information you haven't been presented with. So you're ignorant to it as opposed to information you're purposely ignoring. Um, it, it's but, cultural. And they, you know, yeah. we, we, we've, I, I came up through school where you had to memorize all this stuff. You had to know everything. You had to be able to recite it by rote. And if you didn't, you were looked at as somehow not, meeting the standard or not as strong as somebody who could now that person who could recall it within two seconds sometimes we found out that they were wrong <laughs> and you know that's not great when you double dose a seasoned kid on Ativan or you know something or because you missed you messed up the multiplication in your head at 3 a.m with the family screaming and everything going around um you know it's I, I think it's good that some of the classes have got the, the alphabet soup classes have gotten away from that in favor of, hey, make sure you're looking this up. Hey, make sure you're using your length based tape or your your apps or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think it's a cultural thing. I, we have to start being okay with that. It's not the mark of a weak clinician. It's the mark of a strong clinician. Right. And I mean, I think there's a lot of room for us to R&D and by R&D, the Peter and Tevi version of rip off and duplicate from aviation. Aviation is another high reliability industry. And, you know, we talk about the parallels with aviation a lot, but I mean, you don't look at your pilot like he's weak because he did a checklist before you fly. I think that's a good thing. You would hope he did that. Um, yeah, we sure hope. We would look at him appalled if he didn't. Um, so that's a really important, like, cultural shift on that's an expected behavior. Uh, another behavior I think that would be important is the concept of a surgical timeout. So before we're about to do something that's, you know, low frequency, high risk, pause. And we don't like to pause because it's time critical and we got to get it done. But that pause can save us a lot of mistakes in the future. So taking the timeout, does anybody see anything, you know, that I'm missing? And, I, and the information that you mentioned, often we're operating with incomplete information, either because it wasn't given or we didn't process it. And so that kind of timeout is a space where we can gather that information and see if there's any key piece of the puzzle that's being left out. Are, are you familiar off the top of your head with, with any research or data about how to change or adjust an EMS culture and whether it's to try to get them to use more or better tools or change attitudes of staff? Because I, I think that it's, it's easy to have this sort of, you know, ethereal conversation about like, oh, well, oh, yeah. in, a, in a perfect world, we could, you know, we'd implement this, we'd have you know, grease pen checklists for everything. All providers would have the same information. No clinical guy would have to QA any chart, you know, but obviously that's not the world that we live in. So are you aware of any models that someone could employ to be like, all right, I have to change the culture of this project, whether it's operationally or clinically, what are some ways I can apply that? 
Oh, you know, I'm a numbers nerd, so I've got to bring in some numbers. <laughs> no, but I, I am aware. So if we want to improve something, you know, we have to know where we are to know where we're going. And so measuring our baseline is really important. And there's a variety of really good tools available that I don't think are widely used. So Dr. Daniel Patterson worked on the safety attitudes questionnaire for EMS and that it, it contains domains of different safety behaviors. And it's a survey that gets administered. So you would do that at your agency and see where you land in each of those domains. And then I worked on the survey on patient safety, which is similar to, uh, to a lot of the AHRQ SOP surveys, but we adapted it for EMS and we added in some specific areas that would only apply to EMS. So things like this, this transition of care, the handoff is really important in EMS and we made sure to include it there. And so my recommendation for an organization that wants to really get into this is to take one of these instruments and measure your baseline and then go through the model for improvement. The IHI model for improvement gives us a really good framework on how we can create change once we see that there's change that needs to be made. Um, you know, so that's just walking through this idea of what is it that we're trying to accomplish? So you'd have your baseline data, which tells you which domain you have the biggest room for improvement in. And then how are we gonna know if a change is an improvement? You set your outcome measure. And then the third question is really simple. What changes can we make that are gonna result in improvement? And that's where we get creative and get to test some of these things out, which uh, to your point, this seems complex. Like is there research around what kinds of things we can do to create a more uh, safety conscious organization or create this culture change? Um, and there's a lot of different research out there. And this is also gonna be weird coming from the statistician, but I think a lot of that good research out there comes from qualitative investigation. So understanding these barriers and some of these focus groups, having it in words is really helpful to start thinking about what kinds of things do we need to change if we're going to get there. And that kind of research can be done at any agency, too. It can be back of the napkin or over the water cooler, you know, just talking about, uh, you know, what, what in your eyes is leading to this culture that we have now? What could we do differently? I think that's important, like encouraging conversations among staff to sort of, you know, shift the Overton window to whatever you're you're looking to adjust. And I think it's also important to mention that, you know, the first and, it, and you hear about, you know, anecdotal stories from recovery organizations like that, where the first step to knowing you have a problem is admitting that there is a problem. And I think as, as an industry, we're just we're really bad at that. I don't think that we like to admit that we're doing things wrong or that we ever have done things wrong. Um you know, and certainly we see that, you know, pan out as it comes to different changes in protocols and treatments. We're like, well, we've been doing that for 30 years and be like, all right, well, we've been doing it wrong for 30 years. Well, and it's interesting. I see the other side of that argument too. Sometimes we think we're doing things wrong and we're really not doing a bad job. Um, we hear, you know, the squeaky wheel. And so we, we hear, oh, there's this major problem and we're doing everything terribly. But then when you go and look at your performance measure, you see that it's kind of what we call topped out. You're at 99% and you heard about the one case that turned out to not go that way. Um, but there's always reasons for those exceptions. And then am I really going to put my all of my limited time and resources into squeezing out that 1%? Or you know, what are some ways I can engineer the rest of that error out, perhaps? Uh, so I, I think that's where baseline data is really critical, no matter which way we think it goes, uh, just to take a look and see, I do have limited time and resources, so where am I going to be able to target them to get the most out of them? Which is something that we've discussed previously, where it's, you know, the idea of, of throwing the baby out with the bathwater or, you know, uh, ignoring the good in pursuit of the perfect, you're never going to get you know, 100% compliance or accuracy in anything you're doing. There's always going to be, you know, at least one, like we always, we all know people who are like, I can start an IV on everybody. You know, like, it's like, there's going to be someone you can't hit, you know? Um, I do want to kind of shift over and talk about burnout because this is something we've talked about a lot on the show with a lot of different people. Um, 
so what, what give it give us a, a definition in your mind of what burnout actually is and then we're i think we're going to unpack that for a little bit Oh, we can unpack that for a lot of bit. That was my five-year dissertation project. <laughs> By the end, I was definitely not a case study. No, 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 <laughs> not, not, not at all. No. <laughs> no um, so, of course, because you have to do the lit review for a dissertation, you know, all 200 pages, uh, looking into burnout. You're looking for I, papers and you're like, that that sounds familiar. That sounds, a, that sounds oh, like me. No. Yeah, I start to check off signs. Uh-oh. <laughs> no. No, but um, one of the things I thought was really interesting is I think I came across something like 97 different definitions of burnout. And I know when we hear it, we all kind of get this idea, right? But what was interesting is that there are these commonalities between all the different definitions. And the commonalities that I saw center on this concept of emotional and physical exhaustion directly attributable to work. And so that for me is exactly what we're talking about occupational burnout, what we're talking about, because there's other types of burnout that we don't talk about as often that can be from your personal life. So personal burnout is a thing as well as uh, what we call patient related burnout. So burnout attributed directly to working with patients. Uh, And these are important because they likely have different causes and different drivers and there'll be different solutions to address them. Yeah, because we, and I hear this from people a lot now, and I've even said it, I've even caught myself saying it. It's like, I, I love treating patients. I hate all the performative BS that goes around that core function. And it's like, is that burnout? Right. And so that's really interesting. So that's not patient related burnout because you're not attributing it to the patients, you're attributing it to the, to the processes around that care. And so that is exactly occupational burnout. And that was the bulk of my research. And one of the things that I really wanted to answer, or really wanted to at least try to get the message out there is, you know, when it comes to burnout, what are, what are the solutions that we always offer, right? Like, what are the things we need to do? If I Google it right now, mandatory wellness lectures. Wellness lectures, that's one. A, a yoga right class? Now. Yoga class? <laughs> There's bagels in the break room. Bagels in the break room. Um, oh, but what, oh. what do I need to do? EMT Remley, what do I need to do to, to beat burnout? Well, I get it. And that's, I think that's, that's kind of the purpose of the conversation is we're, we're told, I think now in 2022, I think we're sort of taught to recognize some of the signs of it. You know, you're tired all the time, you know, nothing, nothing seems fun, which also I think is just generally a symptom of living in 2022. Um, But, you know, I think once you get there and especially in EMS, because a lot of people in EMS, that's their career path. That's what they wanted to do. So I think there's also an added component to, you know, you're in your mid forties, you've been doing EMS your entire life. And now you're like, the idea of showing up to work is very, you know, stressful to me. That is, that is like an item directly out of the scale. The thought of another day of work, I'm exhausted at the thought of another day of work. Right. (laughs) Um, But I think a lot of this is the interventions that we offer kind of bug me and not because I'm against any of these interventions, like as an epidemiologist, I like yoga. I like eating, right. I like sleep. I like balance, but all of that to me is like pointing at the provider who has the burnout, right? Like Remley, you need to be more resilient. You need to go out and do yoga. You need to figure out work-life balance. Um, but what actually happens with burnout, the leading theory behind it is job demands resources model. And that model states that burnout is this result of a, a long time. So long-term situations where job demands are outweighing job resources. And a lot of those job demands are modifiable organizational things. And so of course you're gonna say to me, well, call volumes and that kind of stuff. Guess what? Those factors aren't really related that strongly to burnout. Do you know what one of the number one resources related to burnout was? Doesn't cost a thing. 
it was respect. Respect from supervisors and respect from colleagues was one of the factors that was most related to wow. burnout. <laughs> I want I want that on a billboard. Oh, I put an open access publication. <laughs> I want to put that on a banner at every EMS station in the country. It's like, like, here's the number one thing associated to burnout is your supervisor just being nice. You know, it, it's almost like, it's almost like we're being, it's like being gaslit. It's like, you're not, it's, this is your problem. This isn't our problem. We, we, you know, look, look at the trucks, look at the pizza. Look at the sign out front. Didn't we do enough for you? Why? Why do you feel terrible? Meanwhile, you know, you're getting told that you're a dime a dozen. And we've got a pocket full of change around here. Right. I mean, these kinds of attitudes play an important role. And um, what can be considered, you know, firehouse banter sometimes isn't all that funny. Another project we worked on was incivility in the workforce. And that's strongly related to burnout. Um, and then, you know, this idea of not feeling like your boss cares about you or not feeling like your work is meaningful. So we saw another job resource that again, could potentially be done either low cost or no cost is getting feedback on your clinical performance. And I don't mean you're the worst, Remily, do better. I mean, hey, you know that patient you brought in actually had hydrocephalus and that's really, you know, here's some information related to that or we can talk about it. Um, or you know what, you did a really great job picking up on that atypical STEMI. And we were able to get door to balloon time of this and that patient walked out yesterday. Uh, but having that kind of feedback about what you do matters is huge. And we saw that something like only a third of our providers had received feedback from their medical director in the past 90 days when we did this survey. Um, and so you can see- I'm surprised it's that many. Right. And then supervisor too, we also looked at, but both of these were equally related to burnout. And so it was really important to talk about, well, can you do something like in the hospital, it's called walk rounds, but, you know, can we do medical director rounds? Can we get some of these cases and, you know, spend a little FaceTime? There's no real substitute for spending time with people. That gets back to sort of the cultural conversation we've been having this whole time, where I think a lot of times in a lot of projects, your QA process is often viewed as punitive. So, you know, you get used to getting punitive QAs because, you know, you didn't, whatever, you you didn't start an IV on this patient who didn't need one. And our policy says you have to start an IV. So why didn't you do that? So I think people can get resistant to that. But, you know, with with everything that went on, and, and frankly, is still going on with the pandemic, too, I think there's a lot of platitudes that are just kind of easy to ignore. Like, in, in an area near us, there's a, there's a facility and there's a sign that says heroes work here, which is great, except that it's attached to a fence that's immediately next to a cemetery. So... <laughs> It doesn't like the the optics behind that. It's like yeah, that great idea in theory. Oh, that's glorious. And then you know you get to come in and be reminded like yeah, that's that's where the heroes work, right? That's right what I remember another a billboard that I saw and it was an Arby's commercial. It was a billboard like outside the Arby's and it said, start here, go anywhere. And it had half of the person in the Arby's uniform and half of the person in the EMT uniform. And people made a lot of jokes about that one about, you know, why start at EMS and go to Arby's? You can make more money. Right. And so <laughs> I, I think that those things are they get to this point of like a moral injury. Right. Where we feel betrayed by the profession and where um these are these are these cultural things and organizational level things that no amount of yoga is ever going to fix. So I think that what we're saying is we need a multi-level approach. It's not to say that like I'm you know not responsible for my own well-being and shouldn't be taking care of myself, but it is to say that it's not either or. It's not this binary thing. It's a both and situation. So we need organizational level interventions that address that cultural aspect that is so important, as well as some of this education personally to perform self-care and to make sure that I'm taking care of myself so that I can take care of others. 
So, and I, I do want to unpack this this paper from pre-hospital emergency care in 2017 because it's kind of the center of what we're talking about with burnout here. Um, really great data set. I'm, you know, it, again, it'll be in the show notes everywhere. Um, but a couple of the important findings you found was that you know medics are more likely to experience burnout than EMTs. It tends to be associated with, with between five and 15 years experience, which is fun because Danny and I are both medics with between five and 15 years experience. Um, and you also have sure. increased call volume. Uh, and all of that leads to greater odds of leaving EMS, which is its own problem. And one of the things I thought was interesting was it, you can see that if their absences are increasing, that seemed to be a, a pretty positive correlation to, to burnout or leaving. So talk to us a little bit about that. And, you know, again, like what, what can an organization, should an organization not so much police their, their employees, but observe their employees to see if you see those patterns emerging? Yeah, absolutely. And all of those are good points. And, you know, in the second part of the study, we also looked at workplace injury and what its relationship is with burnout, too. So absenteeism is definitely strongly related to burnout. And, you know, for we defined absenteeism as eight or more absences over a 12 month period. Um, and so I think that is one of the early things that we can watch out for. Some of those factors that you mentioned being related to burnout, we can see where they're probably just proxies for other variables. So working as a paramedic, you probably have a higher level of job responsibility, higher job demands, um, maybe you work in busier settings. So we have to think about all of these. Again, it, with a cross-sectional paper like that, we're talking about associations and not causations. But what it does tell me is that, hey, there's a signal here and it warrants further digging into. And that's what we did with the second part of that study. And then there's a third part of that study where we went to a, a single agency and looked over time to see um, if these relationships actually hold true, because one thing is to take a cross-sectional look and say, you know, are you planning to leave the profession in 12 months? And yeah, some people grumble, grumble. Yeah, I'm going to. But, you know, when we put this into practice and we see that people actually do leave the profession, now we have something. And so all of this is just building a body of evidence, which is the goal. Um, and, and it points to always for us to start thinking about drivers and the drivers that I would urge us to consider are what are the job demands and what are the job resources and why are they out of balance? And so if I, you know, if I'm leadership in an organization, I'll be interviewing and I use interviewing in, in a, you know, casual way of, Hey, you know, what's going well, what could be even better or, you know, where are the uh, unnecessary stressors you mentioned? Oh, uh, I'm stressed about patient care. Well, what are those aspects of patient care that make it stressful and make you not want to do it? Is it the paperwork? Is it what, aspects, or you mentioned something that sounded like job autonomy. I have to put an IV just because the protocol says so when I know that patient doesn't need stab and it's going to cause them pain. Um, so things like not having that job autonomy, huge relationship with burnout. Interesting. That's really interesting. And, and it rings true. I'm, I'm thinking about stuff that I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I like my place. Shh. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I was not checking off the box on the signs and symptoms, you know, about patients. No, no, but I think I think there's a resistance to change because I think it's, I, I think sometimes they they think it's acknowledging failure as instead of acknowledging evolution. Like we have to we have to look at it differently. Like there, are, I I can point to a couple factors that I look at at my place and go, we could change this. But I think some people, I think you get into a management mindset or you get into this collective group think that we're just going to plug along because this is what we're doing. And in the, 
and to change course would be a failure. And that's not how we need to think in this profession. It's an evolution. It's if you go into a house and you start treating somebody for COPD and they turn out that they have CHF, you're just going to switch gears. It's not that you failed. It's like, oh, now he's, oh, he's wheezes. Oh, now he has rails. Oh, okay. Well, here we go. You know, we're doing this. Um, I, I, I think that's important. I think that talks back to, you know, research and I think one of the things that I, I notice about agencies is that there is a lack of, I don't know if it's a lack of initiative to do research. I think we need to be doing more EMS research. Um, I, I think that there it's something that we're not looking at. And I think it's part of the problem why we can't define our role in this country. Um, what would you say to an organization or somebody in an organization says, you know, God, I want to get published. I want to, I, I want us to start looking at some things. I want, I want to join the discourse, so to speak. How do you get involved in doing this? What, where do you go from here? You're a medic, you're an EMT or whatever, and you want to do research. Um, where do you start? That's a great question. And, and I think there's a lot of different places to start and it's a growing uh, place to be, which is exciting. So um, first thing I would advise is to get a great mentor. So there's no need to sit here and feel like that you're alone or that I can't possibly do research because I don't have a PhD in biostatistics. That's not the case. Uh, I tell everybody I've never, ever been on a paper, just me. If you see any of my research, there's always an entire team there. And that really is necessary. Uh, so I would urge you to find that community. And a great place to do that, one that I work with quite frequently, is the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum at UCLA. Uh, they host various events, including an event with my workplace, ESO, where we, it's, we call it speed dating for research. It's a three-day um, meeting where we come in with questions, you get paired up with a statistician and a clinical mentor, and we walk through that process of creating an abstract, which is uh, the short form, it's the elevator pitch, if you will, 300 word summary of research that can be presented then at national conferences and then, of course, get developed into the full peer review paper. Uh, that, that's a great way to ease into the waters and see if this is something that you might like. Uh, if you are interested in leading projects, then I would highly recommend getting some education around methodology. Uh, so a lot of folks see me as a statistician, and I absolutely am that, but the real value is methodology. So understanding those questions about study setting, and there's nobody better suited to do this kind of work than EMS clinicians. We know the nuances of the data set. We know the EPCR inside and out. And so we can advise, hey, that data element you're using, <laughs> that doesn't mean what you think it means. So um, these kinds of insights are so important, and it's really great to have EMS clinicians on research teams. So I would absolutely encourage folks to look for those mentors, reach out for collaborators and get involved in research. It, it doesn't have to be this big, scary, intimidating word at all. Yeah, I, I think that there's, now that, you know, again, 21st century type of stuff, there's more information now than there ever has been and it's available to, to everybody. Um, I mean, there, there's so much information that's available. Dr. Crow, you've published so many things that people can find on, on PubMed and Google Scholar or whatever. Um, we have a bunch of different papers that we're going to link in the show notes. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting, uh, we have, you, there was a paper published in October of 21 in uh, the Journal of Sleep Research that essentially mentioned that 25% of the first responders had a high sleep debt and it was correlated with uh, poor cardiovascular health, which is another thing that I think ties into burnout. Um, I want you to unpack that a little bit if you have, a, if you have the time and then uh, we're going to, going to go around and kind of wrap everything up. 
Yeah, I think sleep and fatigue research in EMS is a, an area where we absolutely need more study, and there is a lot of great work on that. So in addition to the study you mentioned, Dr. Dana Patterson has done a lot of work looking at fatigue, and there's even an EMS fatigue guideline, so I urge people to check that out. Um, but, I mean, this is stuff, this is putting numbers perhaps to what we know as a profession. We're like, yeah, of course, we're, you know, we're sleep deprived and we get woken up in the middle of the night and it messes with our rhythms and all of these things. Um, but it's really important to put the data and put the numbers behind this so that we can start to look for the root causes and find interventions that work to address them. Uh, so I, I'd urge us to you know, read the studies like that. And I love that you're going to link to some of this in the show notes, because for me, one of the ways to become a better writer and for to get really into research is I read a ton of other people's work. And it took me a long time you know, reading these articles to figure out what parts are good and what parts are bad. Just because something is published in a high tier journal in JAMA doesn't mean it's perfect. And so I urge us to take away that intimidation factor and read through them. And you're perfectly capable of comprehending what's in there. And if it's really complex and crazy sounding statistics, well, then, you know, maybe there's something going on there. I, I always think if you can explain it simply, then, you know, the effect is probably real. And so we should look at some of those big words with a skeptical eye. Right. If you, if you can explain something, it means that you understand it. And if you it's, can't, then you don't. So, all right. So let's get some, to uh, some final thoughts. Danny, what do you got? I, I think that was a really great point. Um, you know, and I think it underscores the, the thing that the idea that, you know, even at the EMT level at the early stages of your career, you know, I think people look at journals and research as things that only, you know, the high level people can do only the doctors, only the mid levels. It's not something of my world. And it really is because this is what dictates what we're going to do down the road. And by reading research and by doing it, I hope more people do it. We're going to be able to dictate and to show what works and what doesn't work and make the job better. So I think everybody needs to be reading more research or quoting the literature, like everyone says, you know, you can be bougie and say that, but, you know, read it, read a paper, you know, and read the whole thing. Um, you know, a lot of people talk to me about paywalls. And one of the things that I found from Twitter is if you email the author of the paper, they'll send you the PDF for free. They, they will, you know, most, most people love to have people read their stuff and you don't have to have a $400 subscription to a journal. Um, you know, you can find, you know, the abstract and, you know, then dig deep into it, understand it. Um, you know, something that Ken Milne always talked about with us is find the bias, you know, where, where is, where, what's the, what's the angle? Cause a lot of people have the, you know, there's a lot of angles. Um, but this is stuff that EMTs can do. This is stuff that paramedics can do and research is something we all can do. And I think we need to do it as a profession. Caroline, any thoughts? Um, I mean, I think like, especially in our world, like research is a scary word, like people hear research and then they're like, oh, numbers. Oh, so <laughs> like kind of what, um, Dan said, just like reading papers and getting more exposure, like would definitely help. And Dr. Chrome, I think my last thing I want to ask is if, if there is one thing you could change to get people, I guess, a little bit more ready or able to read and interpret data and then have, apply that to change their system. Is there any advice that you could give to either a field practitioner or someone who's a decision maker that wants to start following the data more? 
absolutely. I always say, you know, if we knew what we were doing, it would just be called search. So this research part is really really important, meaning that we're going to do it over and over again. Um, So not expecting that we're going to have these binary yes or no answers or that something is always good or something is always bad, but to prepare ourselves to learn something new and update our knowledge and and go from there. Uh, So I would urge, like I said, I think it starts with reading the scientific literature and there's a lot of good papers out there on how to read and what parts of the paper we should be looking at. Um, And there's a lot of great open access work out there. So recently the Airwave Compendium just was published at PEC. And so that is free of charge for everyone to read. And that is a, a series of consensus documents from experts across the country looking at various aspects of pre-hospital airway management. And it's really fascinating. And all of those come with resource documents, which are the actual research themselves. You can go look up those studies. Um, Another great source for open access papers is JSEP Open. It is the Annals of Emergency Medicine Sister Journal. And all of those papers in that journal are free to read. So I would urge, you know, if you have a little bit of time in the morning, read through a couple of papers and see what parts of it make sense. But the last thing that I'll say is just keep that parachute study in mind when you're reading any study and say, you know, does this study setting apply to mine? Does it look like mine? Or are we likely talking about a plane on the ground? Lots of lots of stuff in the show notes for this one, guys. Dr. Remley Crow, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, I hope everyone hears this and gets to studying.